Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. I have to tell you, some days I'm amazed at the messes that leaders can get themselves into. The things that, as a coach, I wonder what on earth that person was thinking. Now, fortunately, those messes keep me in business. But all kidding aside, no one ever gets everything perfect in leadership. Let's be very clear about that. And if you're like all the leaders I see, you may doubt on days whether or not you're cut out to be a great leader. Or you may even question whether you're doing the right thing as leaders. And if so, welcome to the challenge everyone faces in leading. And today I want to talk about some tales of the kind of messes one leader in particular has made, and more importantly here, tactics for getting on a better path, either correcting the mess or avoiding it in the first place. So my guest today is Scott Miller. Scott serves as the Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership at the Franklin Covey Company. He's also the host of Franklin Covey's On Leadership with Scott Miller, which is a weekly leadership webcast, podcast, and newsletter that features interviews with well-known business titans, authors, and thought leaders, and it's distributed to more than 6 million business leaders worldwide. I can highly recommend it also as a great source. He's the author of a book called Management Mess to Leadership Success, Become the Leader You Would Follow. And he writes a weekly leadership column for Inc. Magazine. All of this work draws on Franklin Covey's leadership principles and the things that Scott has learned through his career and personal experience in life um, to help people be more effective. should say he's also a co-author of another Wall Street Journal bestseller called Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, The Six Critical Practices for Leading a Team. And boy, do we all need that one. Scott, welcome to the show. Wanda, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're right. I'm a total mess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe that at all, but I appreciate the um, humility of saying so as well. Um, you have to be doing something right or you wouldn't be where you are today. But I have to ask, why did you write this book? You know, leadership mess, the leadership success, management mess, the leadership success. Why? Yeah. Why? Well, believe it or not, I kind of felt like the world needed one more leadership book, right? So I found that most leadership books, uh, which profoundly have changed my own leadership style, for me were always a little bit too academic or a little bit aspirational. Not all of them, right? I mean, you know, I've interviewed you on on leadership. I devoured your book, your most recent book on leadership. I, I wanted to write a book for leaders where leadership of people doesn't come naturally, people like me that were promoted into a leadership role because they were perhaps, you know, the star, star standout individual producer, but that leading people wasn't their natural skill set. They were lured into leadership versus led. So I, mm-hmm. I look back at my career, kind of a, you know, two steps forward, one step back, 30-year journey, and thought, I want to write a book that's raw, relatable, and real, vulnerable. And so I collected 30 challenges across Franklin Covey's 40-plus years as being a leadership development firm, 40, 30 challenges every leader faces, and I wrote a story in most cases where I screwed it up, done the wrong thing, said the wrong thing, thought the wrong thing. I didn't mean for it to be a confessional. I just wanted it to be relatable 
here are challenges you are going to face if you become a leader of people. And by the way, if you choose not to be in leadership, that's fine too. I don't think everyone should be a leader of people. And sure enough, the book, book took off, and I think it was really resonant to people that are like me, that are you know great individual producers. They just don't naturally have the skills to lead people. Yeah. So I sort of, Two comments about this one, Scott. One is I certainly see a lot of people who have not been led well. And there's not a history in their organization or in their careers of a model to follow of what it means to lead well. I think they have more natural instincts, perhaps, but they just don't have anything to draw on to kind of as an example of what do I do now. And so I love the fact that that's what your book is focused on. The second thing that I love about it, it is very bite-sized digestible. I mean, it's 30 challenges 30 stories that go with it, and a couple of activities, a couple of tactics to get out of it. I just think for somebody who's looking for, uh, what do I do now? (laughs) How do I do this? This is a great resource for that one. So I'm a fan of it. But you, you, you said that you're being very humble. And one of the things I loved about this book is your willingness to admit your faults. So I have to read a quote. I don't often do this one, but this one just struck me (laughs) Uh as just amazing that in the very beginning of you say, you're telling this story and you say in bold face, let's just say I wasn't born with the humility gene. I struggled with it as a first time manager and I struggle with it now. I have to really work at remembering its value in my relationships especially as a leader. Now, I can imagine people are going to hear that and go, I do not want to work for that guy. <laughs> but tell us about this whole, I mean, really, do you not have the humility gene? And then that's a good thing in some ways and a bad thing in other ways. How do you manage? What? what give us your tips here. Well, you said a lot of wise things in that lead up. I, I think you're right. A lot of us replicate the leadership traits of people who led us before us, right? And we take on traits that are good and bad, perhaps. Uh, I've worked for a lot of charismatic leaders, more charismatic and high energy and big egos and big personas than I perhaps have worked for more humble leaders. So I think coming up the leadership ladder, so to speak, Wanda, I always thought that great leadership meant you were loud, you were big, you were charismatic, you were bold. In some cases, you were even a bully. That that may sound like, you know, it may sound... Strange to people, but that's kind of how I was raised. I was born in Florida on the East Coast, and I always thought that humility was weakness. Literally, I thought these leaders, you know, these, quote, level five leaders that Jim Collins now talks about with, you know, that are kind of more shy, retiring, I always thought they were weak. Oh, I'll eat those people for lunch. And so for me, humility was not, I didn't think humility was a strength. I thought people who were humble were victims or martyrs or just, you know, uh, uh, weren't very forceful people. I came to work for the Franklin Covey Company. Obviously, Stephen Covey, who's passed now, was our founder and and, and took me under his wing for, you know, 15-plus years. He taught me a concept that changed my perspective on humility. He said that humble leaders are more concerned with what is right than being right. And that was prophetic for me. So I began to realize, and as I got to know Jim Collins better and read his work and collaborated with him to our company, I realized that humility can be a strength. It is confident people that can be humble people. 
arrogant people are incapable of being <laughs> humble. So I don't think humble is a go-to strategy for me. It's not a natural strength. I am with age and some wisdom learning when to be humble and when not to be naive, right? I think in some companies, it's very naive not to uh, share your success and, quote, toot your own horn. There's just a nice calibration of, of when to demonstrate humility and when to also stand up for yourself and take credit for something. Yeah, that is a brilliant phrase, though. Humble leaders are concerned with what is right versus being right. I think that's really important. The the world seems to have tipped in the last years in favor of humility. And we forget what I believe is that it's a balance of humility and confidence. Overconfident, I'm going to tip into arrogance. That's not necessarily good. Overly humble, I'm going to be seen as weak, I think is true. But that balance between humble and confident is really kind of the sweet spot in many ways. Um, I am going to throw this question at you in a kind of an odd way, Scott, because I certainly coach a lot of people who don't like the leader you started out being. Like they just don't like that charismatic, sure, big sure. ago, bold, you know, and they will call them bullies, even though by a strict definition of bully, it doesn't fit. It's just that they're right. loud, confident, bold, and very charismatic. Any advice on how to deal with those people? Like, how do we deal with you? Yeah, no, well said. You know, everybody acts away for a reason. I mean, unless you're a narcissist or you're a sociopath, you have some sort of clinical diagnosis, which I don't think the majority of leaders do. I think most leaders of people are doing the best they know how. They're acting the way they do for reasons. Either they were raised that way, they took a liking to their first boss to act that way, so they took on their persona, they watched a movie of someone who was successful. They're acting ways because of certain reasons. You know, the Harvard Business Review, Wanda, published a research study a year and a half or so ago that said the average age that someone is promoted into their first management position is age 30. But yet the average age that most people receive their first leadership development training, age 42. Yeah. There's a 12-year gap where people like me that were a star individual producer, that were promoted perhaps for many of the wrong reasons, are just making it up, right? They're just doing their best, and they're taking their own skills that got made them successful and foisting them on others. They think their job is to turn others into their clone. They're insecure. They have imposter syndrome, they meaning me. And so to answer your question, I think when Dr. Covey wrote the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, 30 years now, 40 million copies sold. He organized those seven habits into the private victory, the first three habits, in the public victory, the next three habits. And he taught this idea of you can't have a public victory, meaning victory, success, effectiveness with others, unless you have a strong private victory, meaning victory with yourself, effectiveness with yourself. What is your mission? What is your purpose? What are your strengths? And so I think to answer your question, when you look at leaders that are perhaps like me, that were jerks, ask them, so what is their private victory based on? Are they just kind of making it up as they go along? Probably. Are they feeling insecure? Probably. Are they trying to dominate because they want to have the attention off of them and onto someone else? Probably. I mean, they're bad people. It means they probably weren't trained or coached or mentored. 
I think as I look back at my first promotion, no one ever sat me down and said, Scott, you're the top salesperson. You've hit eight quarters out of eight quarters or 18 quarters. We're thinking of promoting you. Scott, here are five things you do really well. If we promote you, you've got to stop doing three of these because these skills won't take you there. And by the way, Scott, here's like eight skills you don't possess right now. You're going to need to learn them over the coming months and, and quarters. No one ever told me that. I just thought my job was to keep doing the same thing, just do it to other people. Of course, that's preposterous. So I think if people are trying to deal with leaders who are either bullies or pompous or arrogant or insecure, recognize that that's the case and lead by example. You know, show them the power of vulnerability. Show them where they can be confident. You know, try to build a relationship so they don't have to be arrogant, but rather they can be humble. And if it doesn't work, quit and go somewhere else because everyone deserves to have a great leader. I love that. Quit and go somewhere else. I think that's fabulous. Isn't that true, right? We'll have options and life is too short not to work under great leaders. I think more and more organizations are um, intolerant of leaders like me in my 20s and 30s. I was a good person. I had strong character. I worked exceptionally hard. I wanted to help people. I just didn't understand the competencies of a principle-centered leader. I thought leaders were supposed to take charge, be the smartest person in the room, be the genius, and you know, let people ride your coattails. And, and I'm not ashamed to say that. I'm proud to say I've learned that that's not great leadership, and in my 40s and now 50s, I hope they're becoming a better leader. But I think also be forgiving. I think most leaders are people. Oh, wait, every leader is a person. They're just doing their best with the skills they have, trying to balance their insecurities with their competences. Right. Well, and I think it comes back, I think there's a really important part in there and looking at somebody who might be driving you crazy at the moment as a colleague or as a leader and recognizing what have been their role models. Um, but I don't want to be this all about diagnosing somebody else because I'm a believer in we got to kind of get our own act together here and make sure we're doing the best that we can do. So I want to take a dive um, into a couple of your stories. We talked a little bit about humility I want to go on to a different challenge. I may come back to that one in a minute. No, let me stay on that one for a minute. Um, it's one of it's your first challenge. It's one that you believe in very strongly that you have to demonstrate humility. So, what was the secret for you learning to get the balance right? And therefore, how can the rest of us learn to be more humble? Well, it wasn't working. I mean, just quite frankly, right? It wasn't working for me. People were being forced to follow me. They weren't choosing to follow me. I also came to a point in my career where I started to really understand that effective leadership is about getting work done with and through other people. And so I had to start to slow down and see myself as a coach, as a mentor, not as the expert on all the topics. I started to realize that my value as a leader to the organization was the recruitment and retainment of great talent. People wanted it. People needed to choose to work for me. And over time, at the Franklin Covey Company, where I've now been for 25 years, I, I think it's fair to say, in all humility, that if you want your career to blossom, go work for Frank, go work for Scott Miller, because I've actually think matured tremendously in my skill set. Here is the big learning for me. 
I came to understand that an organization's most valuable asset is, in fact, Wanda, not its people. You hear that cliche a lot. People are not a company's most valuable asset. It is the relationship between those people that are your killer app or your competitive advantage. Because Wanda can have a Ph.D. or a Rhodes Scholar degree from Oxford, and Scott can have a Black Belt Master Six Sigma certification. But if Wanda and Scott can't get along, collaborate, forgive, pre-forgive, listen to each other, complement each areas, each other's areas of expertise and deficiencies, they don't, they don't have any value to the company. So I really started to realize my job is to complement. My job is to check in, not check on. My job is to listen more than direct. My job is to coach more than tell. That I did not need to quote Liz Wiseman in her book, Multipliers, to be the genius in every meeting, but rather be the genius maker. And I just don't think I had the emotional maturity in my 20s and 30s to really pull that together. And I think all of that began to manifest in a little more humility. When I became a better listener is when I really started to become a more effective leader. Great. Well, there is a lot in that little, t- that small bit there. I think we just need to abstract that part <laughs> out and play it over and over and over and over again. Uh, but you so are a psychologist, never... so I know you're analyzing me in real time. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I'm interested in how you see the world. That's what's interesting to me. Um, I love something you said there that I just think it's like it's so immediately obvious. Why did I ever think of it before? It's not that people are your most valuable asset. I love that. The, the killer app is the relationship between people. Jesus, that wise. Oh, my gosh. And it's that's so true. Why, can, I, can I riff on that for a moment? Yes, go. Sorry. The, the one big idea that I learned from Dr. Stephen R. is the difference between being efficient and being effective. He wrote this book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's often misquoted being The Seven Habits of Highly Efficient People. And as I became more aware of the difference between being efficient and being effective, my relationships grew because I am a very efficient person. It's actually the key to most of my success in life. I like to get things done. I wake up early. I write an ink article. I have a podcast. I have a radio program. I write books. You know, I'm the kind of guy that goes to Home Depot at five in the morning on Saturdays. I beat the employees there. The marigolds are loaded in my car by 5.30. They're planted by 6. The car is washed by 7. The lawn's mowed by 8. I mean, that's a natural Saturday for me. I'm a very productive, efficient person. That's great in certain areas of our life, but you cannot be efficient with people. You have to be effective with people. And once you realize, if you're like me at all, where you have an efficiency mindset, do things quick, do things fast, get things done. You cannot treat your relationships that way. I was always treating my relationships like I mowed the lawn. Fast, good enough, on to the next thing. And Dr. Covey taught me this concept of with people, slow is fast, and fast is slow. Now, I'm still an efficient person. But what I have to do, Wanda, is recognize when someone comes into my office, close my laptop, turn off my phone, turn it over, take off my glasses, and check into them. When I take my three boys to get ice cream on Saturday, I used to take them to get it done as fast as I could. Now I think, no, 
this should take as long as possible, right? Not as fast as possible. So for me, it was a life-changing insight on the value of relationships. People don't quit their jobs. They quit bad bosses and corrupt cultures. If you take the time as a leader to develop relationships, everything changes for the better. Great. Love that one. There was so much in that. in that one. That was fabulous. Um, efficient versus effective, and effective is where we want to be, particularly as we're talking about all of this world. Um, and relationships are the killer app. Relationships between your people are the killer app. I love that. Uh, that I just have to add my own tagline on it because one of the things that I'm passionate about is how do we make sure we have better conversations better conversations at work in every form they come in, whether it's feedback, a challenging conversation, a positive conversation, a brainstorming conversation, a pick anything. Everything that happens happens through a conversation and relationships are derived through the quality of the conversations. So we're on the same page, Scott. It's awesome. No, you're a couple pages ahead of me, but thank you for thank you for letting me be in the same book as you, <laughs> metaphorically. <laughs> I just you reminded me of somebody I used to coach who was super super duper efficient, and it just bugged the daylights out of him that a meeting started late, or you didn't finish yes. the agenda, yeah. or you don't cl- yeah. you know like you don't end on time or take notes. I mean, just everything was efficient, efficient, efficient because that was what was effective for the productivity of the company, and. As, apart from my coaching, what broke through for him was being on holiday in Florida at watching the dolphins with his family and his kids. And the trainer of the dolphins said, the important thing is to make sure the dolphins have fun. Because if they do, it'll be a good show. It'll be a good day. It'll be good everything. And that just broke through to him like, oh, my gosh. People have to have some fun, and it kind of suddenly his efficiency went out the door. So whichever way it works for you, um, that slow is fast or fast is slow, or um, have fun, any one of those to recognize that effective is the answer. Okay, I want to move on and talk about challenge four. Declare your intent. Now, I particularly like this one because there are too many times when we think we understand someone's intentions and we get it wrong and the relationships and thus the results suffer. So what do we do about this? Why is it important to you and what do we do about it? Well, I love this quote from one of our co-founders. I'm sure people have heard it. Nearly all, if not all, conflict in life comes from mismatched or unfulfilled expectations. You know, for your listeners, think about the interpersonal conflict you have in your life. Might be with your partner, your spouse, your kids, your mother-in-law, your neighbor, someone on a committee at work. It might be with the gentleman who's cutting down the tree in your front yard or the guy who's detailing your car as a gift for your wife, whatever it is. Most mismatched expectations come because no one took the time on either side to declare up front what you needed or to listen to what the other person needed. You know, it's kind of based on this age-old PR principle. Absent facts, people make stuff up. Oh, I thought yeah. you had $570 for me to detail your car. Oh, you only had $70, right? So I have lots of examples in my own life where conflict came about because I did not exercise the courage to talk up front around how much money I have to, to you know, cut down the tree. 
people wonder why they're presented with a bill that's three times as much. Next time you have someone, quote, metaphorically, cut down the tree in the front yard, say to them, how much is going to cost? Well, I think it'll cost about $80. Great. So you know, I only have $80 for this. If by any chance you think it could come anywhere close to even $81, will you knock on my front door and let's talk about it? Mm-hmm. So declaring your intent is all about minimizing conflict and clarifying expectations. Because if, if, you, if you're truthful, we all have an agenda. We all have motives. Some of us have deep, hidden agendas. Some of them are more service to the top. But if you don't declare your intent, people will ascribe intent to you. So I think in every conversation where there's any potential for and say, Wanda, my intent in this meeting today is to help you build a great career here at the Franklin Covey Company. I can see a great career here for you, Wanda, and I have some high-courage feedback to give you on some behaviors that I think if they were to continue, Wanda, it might result in you even being exited from the firm. So Wanda can't think I want to fire her, because up front, I clearly declared my intent. My intent was to help you fulfill a great career that I can see for you here in the firm. Now, it's easy for you and I to talk about it on the phone, but people have to move outside their comfort zone. They have to sometimes discuss the undiscussable and not just declare your intent, but listen and ask for the other person. What is it you need out of this fundraising event? What do you need out of this interview? What do you need out of this collaboration? Because the more you understand someone else's attempt, intent, the less assuming there is. I think it's a fundamental leadership skill to both declare your intent to minimize confusion, and you'll also find that you'll be closer aligned on what success, quality, the results look like if you take the time to declare your intent. And I encourage your listeners, work it into your conversation. Start making I'd like to declare my intent as like a, 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 a brand that you use in your meetings, in your reviews, in your discussions, including with your personal relationships. Yeah. Yeah. I went long that on that so, one. Forgive me. No, that's okay. <laughs> it's a really, really important one. I picked it out for a purpose because I think we just get this wrong. I think we assume it should be obvious that people should know, and they don't particularly when my livelihood is at stake based on how you interact with me or treat me or help me or give me feedback, um, I don't always know what your intent is. And I can think I thought I knew and then you changed your mind. So it's that's just, it's hugely important. And you know, as everybody knows, I do an awful lot of work with underrepresented groups in organizations and I can't emphasize enough for everybody trying to manage somebody who's not like you you must declare intent because it is not immediately obvious. So I get as passionate about this one as you do. All right. Scott, well, I, I think is, it's especially important where there might be low trust in a relationship where someone does suspect your motives. And yeah. so it's even more important to declare your intent because people will think, well, you know, he or she has this plan for me or they're just you know, trying to railroad me out of here. But, it, but, but your intent also has to be pure and true, right? You can't, you can't have one motive and then declare another motive to be true, because then, of course, you'll be found to be an untrustworthy leader. Yeah, right. 
right? We'll get that one figured out. I'm giving everybody benefit of the doubt of they actually really do intend to to do the right thing as much <laughs> as they can. One of the interesting things about working with underrepresented groups is they may trust you, but the trust is fragile. It will shift mm-hmm. quickly. And, you know, one of the things that causes it to shift quickly and turn south is a misunderstanding of intent. Can't tell you how many times I've seen that happen. Any rate, Scott, excellent. There is so much to talk about. We're going to take a break at this point. Um, I'm with Scott Miller. We are talking about management mess to leadership success. Become the leader you would follow. Um, It's a fabulous book and a great set of takeaways. When we come back, I have four or five more challenges I want to talk about. We'll be right back. it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Scott Miller. The book that we have been talking about is Management Mess to Leadership Success, Become the Leader You Would Follow. Um, As you can tell, I'm a big fan of this book, largely because it's 30 basic challenges that I find people encounter over and over and over again. And what's so nice about the book is it's just such simple, simple things, exercises to do to get there. So, Scott, I want to pick up with a challenge um, we haven't talked about, which is called one of my favorites, Challenge 11, Check Your Paradigms. Tell us about that one and why that's important. Well, I've learned so much about the fact that all of us have deeply enculturated belief systems, mindsets, and paradigms. Again, Dr. Covey didn't invent this term. He kind of popularized the idea of the paradigm shift about 30 years ago, along with others in the industry. And the more that I have understood some of the things that I was taught to believe. I mean, Wanda, 
I was raised on the in the East Coast. I'm from Orlando, Florida. Two, you know, middle class parents. Mother was a stay at home mom full time. Father went to work, you know, eight to five kind of thing. And I was raised to believe in the seventies. Now you're going to laugh at this: that police officers, doctors, and Catholic priests always told the truth and were always right. It, it was like infallible. Well, we know, Wanda, our doctors yeah. always right. No. Do police officers always tell the truth? No. No. And I'm, and I'm, by the way, I'm a lifelong member of this faith journey. I'm raising my three sons in this Catholic faith. Do Catholic priests, are they always right? Do they always tell the truth? Uh, no. Oh, hell to the no. But I was <laughs> raised this way to believe this, right? And I use that example with respect to, you know, members of all the clergy that do their best to help uh, those people yes. of their faith. These are flawed paradigms. So this idea around checking your paradigms is as a leader, or for that matter, people who aren't leaders recognize that you have incomplete lenses, metaphorical lenses and your glasses to which you see everything and everyone, how you see yourself, how you see your industry, your company, your boss, the people who work for you. We have deeply entrenched paradigms that are principal in sixth grade, our first grade teacher, our first boss, our parents, whoever these influential people were in our lives and still are, they warp our paradigm. How we see people of other races and genders and sexual preferences, you know, whatever it is. So I think as leaders, we have to really be nimble, emotionally, intellectually recognize. You know what? I don't have the whole story. I don't see this completely right or accurate. Am I open to challenging my own paradigm, especially when you're a leader about your people? If every one of your listeners right now did an inventory of all the people on their team, they would have some deeply entrenched paradigms about each person, lazy, smart, hyper, calming, competent, incompetent, needs to be challenged, whatever it is. And I think a great competency of leaders is your willingness to recognize you never have an accurate or complete paradigm on anything, and could you suspend your belief and have your paradigm challenged? This is what I believe is at the heart and soul of the ability to build a genuinely collaborative culture. That if you really, truly want to collaborate to solve problems that none of us could solve all on our own, which is where you need collaboration, then I have to be willing to acknowledge my own paradigm and suspend that paradigm, including my own expert knowledge, because that may be only part of the story, not the full story. And this notion of coming to understand what is my paradigm, let me pull it out of the back recesses of my head and put it out on the table so I can claim it, own it, acknowledge it, walk around it, challenge it, is really kind of heart and soul of what it takes to build collaborative and, by the way, inclusive cultures couldn't be better said. Any advice for how to recognize your paradigms? You know, I was privileged to interview Dr. Susan David. I believe she's a psychologist at the Harvard Medical School, wrote a phenomenal book called Emotional Agility. Mm -hmm. And one of the simple but I think important things that Dr. David taught me, the amazing book, right? Not to mention she's South African, so I love listening to her. But she talks about this idea of separating um, facts from emotions and your opinions and feelings, right? Your opinions, your feelings, your emotions are just that. And facts are just that. And the more you become a mature leader, 
you realize, are your paradigms being shaped by your emotions and your feelings versus facts? You know, did that person actually say that in the meeting, or did you hear they said that, right? Did you think they said that, or actually did say that? So I think my best advice is just recognize you don't have a complete or accurate paradigm about anything. doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means it may not be reflective of really what's happening or someone else's perspective. I think as leaders, as we consolidate influence and positional power, coercive power, our experiences shape what we think is right. It should be done this way and not be done that way. There's lots of different ways to skin a cat. And I think as we become more dogmatic as leaders and our own experience shapes the way we think things should be done, the less nimble we are in our paradigm to say, you know what, there are more than one ways to meet your quarterly goal. Has been ethical, and here's our process, but you might choose to build your pipeline or your prospects differently than I did, and that's okay. I, I did not have that capability in my 20s and early 30s. I thought very formulaically. I thought this was how it needed to be done. This is why I was promoted. And I've come to realize now that's you know, an enormously limiting paradigm. And also limited the, the, the creativity and the entrepreneurialism, the magic, that ex- the genius that existed around me. Yeah. You know, it's easy to say there's more than one way to do it. It's a whole other thing. I think one of the things that gets in the way on there is our paradigm about control, about how much control we should have how much control we're trying to have and how much control we actually do. Because the more control I want to have, then the harder it is for me to allow, to separate out all these facts from emotions and opinions and feelings and to allow alternative ways. Um, I just have to uh, quote, you have a lovely exercise in here on checking your paradigms. And you say four steps, write down your belief about each team member's promotability, meaning people that you're leading, and then Mm -hmm. ask yourself, could my belief be inaccurate or incomplete? And then say, if I suspended my belief, how could they earn more promotability? And then what do you see as a result? And then, you know, have the courage to have the conversation with someone about it. I think that's just such a simple, straightforward, excellent exercise. All right, Scott, moving along, because there's so many of these to talk about. I want to talk about challenge number 15, show loyalty. Now, that's an interesting one. Why does this matter? Oh, wow. Dr. Covey, you know, talks a lot about this idea of being, you know, loyal to the absent. This is a different kind of loyalty. I think the president of the U.S. has in some ways perverted this idea of loyalty. And I'm not, I'm not mentioning, you know, whether I'm pro or con on him. I just think this word loyalty has taken on a bit, a bit of a different meaning. I, I don't really care for that. Dr. Covey taught this idea of being loyal to the absent. It basically addresses the cancer in every organization, and that is gossip. We're raised around gossip in our churches, in the recreation centers, in every social institution. And many of us who were raised were kind of a common way in which you communicate. Well, don't tell my said this, but, or here's what I think, but don't share it with her. I mean, it's almost kind of a natural personality trait for a lot of us. It is a cancer inside organizations. This idea of never talking about someone differently when they are not standing in front of you than you would if they were standing in front of you, will transform your divisional culture. It'll transform your own brand as a leader. It'll transform your reputation. 
I think the quote that I put in the book is, you know, you build trust with those who are absent when you are loyal to those who are present. Because if Juan and I are at lunch and Wanda is trashing Jean, what I'm thinking is, well, Wanda's going to do the same thing with me when she's at lunch with Tina. So if you, if you want to build a high-trust culture in your organization, you must become a light, not a judge. Become a model, not a critic. Do not speak about anyone differently when they are not in the meeting than if they were sitting five feet from you. Now, that does not mean that you don't tell people what you think. You just tell it to them directly and often in private. And if somebody else is gossiping or disparaging someone, you don't need to claim the high moral ground. You don't need to, quote, rush to the first pew in the church and shame them. You can simply say, you know, Wanda, I know this wasn't your intention, but I'll bet if Jean heard you say that, that would hurt her feelings. And I'm sure you didn't mean that. So I really encourage you, if you really feel that way, go talk to Jean. She deserves you to tell her that. And if I had the same experience, I'll tell Jean that as well. I haven't, now, I haven't shamed Wanda, but I have set a standard. And Wanda is not going to do that in my presence ever again. And you can, by model and example, shut down disloyalty and gossip in a matter of weeks when, as the leader, you demonstrate that you will not tolerate it. And you can do it without shaming anyone and rising everyone's behavior to a higher standard. Yeah, that means, though, Scott, we have to be really good at one of your other challenges. I think it's challenge number 12, which is leading difficult conversations. I have to get better at being able to say to the person's face what's really troubling me or what I'm really thinking or what I think needs some work or development. Um because what I think we do is we lack the courage to have those difficult conversations, so we gossip about it as a sideline, as a way of kind of, I don't know, feeling better about it. Um, do you agree with me that it just takes courage? Well, it takes courage. It takes practice. It takes checking your intent. It takes love and care. I mean, I, on this one, I'm sort of brutally pragmatic. If you can't summon the courage, the fortitude to have difficult conversations, you don't deserve to be a leader of people. You need to step down. Because I would argue next to recruiting and retaining quality talent, giving people feedback on their blind spots is the next second most important leadership contribution you will ever make. So if you are going to accept or continue to be a leader of people, you need to build the skill of leading difficult conversations. And there are some, there are some tips I would share. Do I have a minute to share some of those? So absolutely. Yeah, I think first is, is really checking your intent. You know, when we have conversation with people, make sure your intent is pure because all of our intent isn't always pure. Sometimes if you're honest with yourself, you're trying to capitalize on it or you might be wanting to humiliate the person. And again, you may not like that language, but there's truth in that. Not everyone's intent is always pure. It doesn't make you a bad person. It makes you a person. So when you challenge your intent, it will help you better to lead the difficult conversation. I think you have to role-play it. You know, I'm a very loud, passionate, persuasive person. If I'm not careful, my, my persuasion um, propensity, my, my, my likelihood to always be in a selling mode can, can intimidate people. 
I, I can verbally eviscerate people if I'm not careful. So I have no lack of courage. My problem is I lack consideration. I lack diplomacy. I have to be careful that I don't damage someone's self-esteem or, for worse, their self-worth. So it takes a balance of courage and consideration. And I have to role-play it because my passion can sometimes come out as anger. I'm not angry. I'm just passionate. So I'll role-play this conversation with you with my chief people officer or a member of the executive team or, in some cases, a board member. And then I can see what it looks like to be in a feedback session with me or in a high-courage conversation, what the power differential is, my rate, my tone, my pitch, my voice, where I'm sitting in the room. Is it the right circumstance? Have I built the trust for the person? Is this person going to want to defend themselves immediately and then give me feedback on myself? I think it's incumbent on every leader to summon the courage and the consideration to discuss what in many cases are these undiscussables that, that because the leaders before you did not exercise this, you have people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s inside organizations that are repeating behaviors over and over again, and no one loved them enough to sit them down and have a high-courage conversation. It might be about their grooming habits. It might be about their lack of ability to take responsibility for their project. It might be their inability to give anybody else credit. It might be their tardiness. I mean, I've had lots of conversations around deodorant and antiperspirant. I've had conversations around, around dress and such. I've gotten better at them. I've messed a lot of them up. But with practice and pure intent, if you truly care about the other person, nine times out of ten, they'll go better than you think. Um, I have a feeling there are going to be a bunch of people calling you about how do they have that conversation because I get asked that all the time. How do I have this conversation about somebody's personal habit, personal habits? Um, that are kind of distressing everybody. And I don't want to go down that hole because everybody has lots of conversations. I love what you said, though. It's the courage plus the consideration. And you said later, it's the care plus the pure intent. And so I get a sense of all of these coming together to make the right um, environment, mix, if you will, to make it more feasible that the challenging conversations can actually go forward. Um, not that there's not a lot more to talk about, but I want to move on to challenge 19, which is protect your team against urgencies. What's this one about? I love that you picked this one. By the way, you are an amazing interviewer. You're a remarkable synthesizer. I love this interview. I, I'm on multiple radio programs and podcasts every week. This is one of my favorites. You are so well-prepared and you're a great synthesizer. So thank you for honoring me today, Wanda. I really appreciate, appreciate that. That's very genuine. Um, it's a pleasure. Protect, protect your team from urgencies. I mean, I'll, I'll, give, a, I'll give a bit of a confession. I, I love a good crisis. It's when I do my best work. I like the adrenaline. I like the dopamine squirt for my brain. I, just, I do my best work under pressure. So I love a good crisis. I love to save the day. I like to feel important. And some of you might be dismissing me, but I bet if you're really genuine with yourself, I'll bet some of your listeners can relate to this. Here's where it gets bad. I love a crisis so much, if one doesn't exist, oh, I'll cook one up. Elevate (laughs) a a common issue to sort of urgent level crisis so that I can get that adrenaline and that rush and that pressure. 
you know, there's a phenomenon, mm-hmm. I forgot the name, where some of these um, um, illegal and unethical firefighters, they're rare, but we know that sometimes there's been this phenomenon where firefighters will light a fire so mm-hmm. they can be the first person there to put it out. There's a name for that. You perhaps know it as a um, ecologist, but and I, don't, and I don't suggest in any way I can relate to that. I do not. But I have been known to be urgency addicted. So the first point I would say is to your leaders, if you can relate what, to what I just said, that you do your best work under pressure, you like that adrenaline rush, rush you like to save the day, be very mindful because when you're protecting your team from urgencies, what you might need to do is to protect them from yourself. Have a conversation about it. Be vulnerable. Sit down with your team. Laugh about it and say, okay, okay, guys, confession round number 416 with Scott Miller. You know what? We all know I do my best work under pressure, and sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. If you all ever see me elevating something that feels a little bit artificial, call me out on it. Maybe call me out in private, because I'm also human, but let's recognize that I have this propensity, and that's not always a good thing. I also think it's important to recognize as a leader, Wanda, that your team cannot thrive long-term where everything is a crisis. It it destroys your credibility. It fatigues them. They burn out. They quit. And they go other places. Because here's the big problem with being a leader who's always addicted to urgencies. You have to find a job in an organization that values your your urgent, addicted, problem-solving skills. They usually have corrupt systems, so their practices and strategies are discombobulated. You'll, well, you won't find a job in an organization that's a you know, smooth, lean, mean, running machine. They have no use for you because they're not yeah. facing crises all day long. So I think the big aha there is just to recognize what is important and what is urgent and to be comfortable calling yourself out or having others call you out when you are perhaps uh, wrongly elevating something to urgent level. Everything yeah. is not urgent. I think it was Brendan Bouchard who wrote a book called High Performance Habits, you know, the YouTube sensation. He said something similar to nearly everything in life is better done lower. And, I, and that has, that, that's kind of seeping into my leadership style. I like to do things urgent and fast and efficient. Yeah. Okay, so if I had, um, let's see, how many times I've been asked in the last two weeks, could I do a webinar to help people stay motivated, which is a nice dressed-up way of saying, I am worried that my team doesn't have a strong enough sense of urgency and I can't see them every day to ramp them up to be a little more urgent, and I'm worried they're being slack. Because when you talk about motivation, the behind the behind the curtain, what it really is, is the sense of urgency. And so it makes me wonder how many of those same people asking for that have their own addiction to urgency and then are, you know, kind of just can't, they're missing that adrenaline drive of being able to pump it into everybody else too. And you're right, it does lead to burnout. People can't perform at that level all the time. They don't want to. It's not a lot of fun. We used to joke that you never give somebody who's a great turnaround artist or a great crisis manager a smooth running ship because they will break it just to have something to do. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about here. (laughs) And don't give your most creative minds a budget. 
because everything yeah. <laughs> will get funded and every idea will get green lighted, right? And I mentioned yeah, that right. about myself, right? I mean, I, I one of my biggest con- contributions to Franklin Covey has been my level of creativity. I, 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 I am humbly comfortable saying I'm a rather creative person. The problem is I have more ideas than you could ever execute on, right? And the closer to the deadline, the bigger the ideas get and the more money I need. And that's been kind of funny over the years. And over the years, it's also, I think, been a distraction to the firm. And I'm, I'm comfortable admitting that. Yeah. Okay. I love that. We all have our foibles and it's okay. <laughs> it makes us human. <laughs> Absolutely makes us human. Okay, Scott, we have literally three minutes. So we, uh, of the... 73 challenges we haven't talked about. There are not that many of them. Um, 27 we haven't talked about, whatever. What's the one thing you would like to highlight for people? Well, I think it's the third challenge. Listen first. We talked a little bit about this. I think as leaders, this is especially counterintuitive to us because we've spent our whole life communicating and being trained to speak and influence and to PowerPoint, keynote. And I think listening is a leadership competency. It's counterintuitive. We are always in the role of trying to fix things and ask questions and get to the root cause and peel the onion. Those are good skills to have. When it comes to relationships, bringing it full circle, if you believe that relationships between your people is what indeed separates you from your competition, if that is your legacy, then all of us will spend a little more time talking less and listening more. It requires you to move off your own agenda. Move off your own timeline. Move off your own narrative. comes from a good place. We want to help people solve their problems. You know, oh, I dated her. Here's how you break up with her. Or I've worked for him. Here's how you deal with that. Or I've shopped there. Here's how you return that. All of this, all of this propensity to help people usually comes from our desire to fix it for people. I actually don't think it's helpful. People don't want you to fix their problems. They generally just want to be long. They want to be validated. They want to be listened to. So I would just say kind of a call to action to leaders is to really understand what empathic listening means. It doesn't mean that you agree with someone. It just means that you understand their point of view, their solution, their challenge. So listening is rather selfless. Talking can be rather selfish. I'd say work on that a bit. <laughs> Talking is selfish. Wow. Okay, Scott, that leaves me with two killer lines for today. Killer line number one is people are not your most important asset. The killer app is the relationship between your people. I mean, like that is, like that will stick with me for a long time. And the second topical line for the day is talking is selfish. Ha <laughs> ha. That's just, I love it. What a great way to say it. Scott, there's so much in today's conversation and so much more that we can talk about um, that I just think is hugely important. And what's fascinating to me is even though these are written as 30 challenges, there are 30 challenges that all tie back together at the end of the day. And you started on the very early part talking about Stephen Covey's notion of efficient versus effective. And I see how all of these are an outgrowth of how to be more effective as a leader. And as you've said now several times, your job is about recruiting and retaining people 
And you had one more that I have lost. The, yeah, I, and I said, I, and then second is giving people feedback on their blind people spots. feedback. That's right. Giving people some feedback. And then I think the third one, the next one is about listening to people. What a great set of tools. My um, guest today is uh, Scott Miller. Scott's book is Management Mess to Leadership Success, Become the Leader You Would Follow. He's at the Franklin Covey Company. Um, you can find more about him by just Googling him because he has an awful lot to say out there in the world. Scott, thanks for being a guest on today's show. Wanda, it's been my honor. Thank you for the platform. Thank you. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.